Welcome to the Financial Coaches Network, a show to help financial coaches build and grow successful coaching businesses by focusing on the three pillars, getting clients, working with clients, and running the business. I'm Garrett Fulbin. Over the first four years as a coach, I grew a successful financial coaching business to over 80K in annual revenue. And I'm Joshua Escalante Troche. As a tenured professor of entrepreneurship and a consultant, during the past two decades, I've helped more than a thousand entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. So get that pen and paper ready or open up the notes app on your phone. It's time to build your ideal financial coaching business. Today, we have one. So Josh, what's this topic that we're talking about today? So we're going to do a technical knowledge one. We're actually planning on doing these more frequently. And this one is all around debt and just understanding it, not and really trying to divorce ourselves from emotional responses to that word, as well as the emotional baggage that we might have. Awesome. And now... We go into the exciting topic of dun 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 debt. So let's rock, yeah, let's start off, right? Say <laughs> so with that awkward introduction, you're welcome, fam. Yeah, where do you want to start off? So let's start with demystifying the concept of interest. It's important to realize that the concept of interest is effectively the same thing as the concept of compound returns. The only difference is instead of putting money in a little bit at a time, and then you have a large amount at the end, you get an amount at the beginning and you put money in a little bit at the time. Mathematically, they're the exact same thing, different sides of the time value of money equation. So that being said, there's a lot of sort of misinformation around the idea of money, right? The idea of debt and and interest. One of the most common things that people talk about is how, oh, interest is people taking money unfair, the bank stealing money from people. Well, that would only be true if you also believe that when you put money into your 401k, but you get more money out, that you're stealing money from people. (laughs) Good point. Money has differing values through time. And the money today is worth more to you than that same amount of money in five years. Garrett, if I were to offer you, I would give you $5 today or $5 10 years from now, which one would you take? I would have a $5 foot long today. (laughs) Right. Because you can spend it today or you can invest it or you could pay down some high interest debt or whatever else you want to do with it. And you don't know if I'm going to be around in five years. On the other hand, if I offered you, I'll give you $5 today or a million dollars in five years. You gonna have that $5 foot long? I'll have 200,000 $5 foot longs in five years. Thank you very much. So somewhere between $5 and a million dollars is a crossover point where it's worth waiting for the money. Yes. And that's really what the time value of money, that field of math tries to deal with. And what this means is, yes, you're going to pay back more money when you have a loan because there's going to be interest over the course of the loan. But that does not mean that it's a bad deal because going back to the exact same example we just talked about, money has differing values through time. And it is more valuable to have $100,000 today than it is to have $120,000 
in five years or 10 years or 20 years, whatever number that is, even though you are going to pay that extra $20,000 in interest. And so it's very important that we, we understand the time value of money from a conceptual standpoint so we can put debt into that proper context. Because otherwise, what we end up looking at it as, well, I'm going to get $100,000 and then pay back $120,000. Well, that's not fair. But that's exactly what we do in reverse when we invest. Yeah. And we don't think that that's not fair, that we're stealing from other people in that scenario. And I like it, that kind of the, the value of what you get today versus if, if you could use that money to buy a house today yeah. and the value of that house over the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years is worth it to you of the amount that you're going to pay back, then you're like, sure, I'll do it. Well, and it's not just the financial value of the house. It's your kids having a place to run around in the backyard. Maybe the house comes with a pool, right? Maybe it's you love gardening and now you have the ability to garden more than just hanging a couple of pots off the balcony in your apartment. That New York life. Yeah. Yeah. And so you want to look at it from a more holistic viewpoint and not have this emotional response that debt is evil or debt is bad. Because that will impact. Nor evil. Yeah. And that'll impact how you work with clients and what you kind of project onto their debt and the questions yeah. they have for you. And I will tell you when I work with clients that are in debt, one of the things that we'll talk about is, you know, we're not going to get rid of all of your debt. We're going to put a plan together to manage your debt. And there is a visible sigh of relief to both of those statements, right? There's a visible sigh of relief of, oh, we're going to have a plan to manage my debt. That sounds great because I don't feel like I'm in control of it. But there's also this visible sigh of relief of, okay, great. You're not a person that is myopic about, I have to get rid of all of my debt because that becomes overwhelming. And I'm not even sure if that's a good idea and so on and so forth. And so just realize that you may actually be unknowingly losing clients because of the fact that they're a particular belief that you have may not sit well with them. And you're most of your clients are small business owners. So they will also have a potentially different view. A lot of business debt. Yeah, yeah I was going to say a different view about debt than someone who has a different ideal client. So also just... Although I do have clients that are just high income, lots of debt, haven't saved for retirement yet, and they're in their 40s. And that's the situation that they're coming to me as well. And those are usually the clients where I'm talking about that sigh of relief. Business owners tend to have already vetted me because they have heard enough conversations with people where it's a financial coach, a financial advisor, a guru, whatever, that has this completely naive view of the world. And they kind of laugh at those advisors. Those naive views include everything from debt is evil to you should invest in your 401k because that's the best way to increase your wealth. Do you not understand what being a business owner means? <laughs> right. And so there's all these naive views that a lot of, we'll call it financial advice services people have related to business owners. And they tend to have already vetted me through that process. Gotcha. Okay. So. Yeah, that would be an interesting topic, I think, for another day. Well, we, I feel like we've touched on it in a different one, but just 
when debt is good for small business owners. I think specifically mm-hmm. for financial coaches who on the whole, I would say are more averse to debt yeah. than maybe some other groups of people. And just to get a sense of you know, why would investing in your or maxing out your 401k be potentially a, or I guess it wouldn't be 401k, but maxing out and putting more money towards retirement versus into your business. Like what are the downsides of doing that? Pros and cons. And just because I think that perspective would be really helpful. Yeah. The use of debt as a business owner, we covered in crash course, about 95% sure it was, it's in crash course, but the retirement versus investing the business. I think we did talk about it earlier in a live, but it's not in any of the FCN stuff, but yeah, we can do a whole thing just on that because we only mentioned it before. Yeah. That'd be fun. So, all right. So let's go back to debt, right? Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So we talked about this idea of basically functioning the same way as investing with regards to the time value of money. So let's talk about how it's a tool for good and how it's a tool for bad. And I'm going to give you two scenarios and you tell me whether or not it feels like debt would be a good idea or a bad idea. Okay. Okay. Scenario number one, you are going to plop down a credit, a loan at 8% in order to put a, in order to put a bunch of plants in your yard. These plants are going to be dead three months later. And you're going to be putting in $40,000. And the only thing you really want to do is look at the plants. So you're going to pay 8% over 10 years to put plants in the lard that will be dead three months later. And there's no real reason to put the plants in. Good idea or a bad idea? Generally a bad idea. And I've seen how short the lifespan is for certain plants in Tucson. So I would yeah. not trust me to even do any kind of gardening. So yes, that idea for me. Okay. So that was an 8% loan. Option number two, you're going to plop down your credit card, 30% loan, $100,000, because you are going to buy a small goose. This goose, you've had it verified scientifically. It has been proven. It lays gold eggs. It lays one gold egg a month. The egg is valued at $50,000. So you're going to get $50,000 a month, which is a 50% 50% monthly return in exchange for a in exchange for a $100,000 credit card debt at 30%. Good idea or bad idea? Fantastic idea. So what's the difference between that? Because it sure as hell wasn't one's a credit card and one's not. It sure as hell wasn't one is a larger amount of money in one's lot. It sure as hell wasn't one is a 30% loan and what is an 80% loan. So what was the difference? It was the rate of return that I got based on the loan or the ROI based on the loan. Yeah. Said more simply, at the end of the loan, do you have more money or less money than you had at the beginning? (laughs) Right. When all factors are taken in. And that's fundamentally how you determine whether or not debt is good or bad is what does it do to the overall finances over the course of that period of time? And what this means is there is no such thing as an inherent type of loan that is good or inherent type of loan that is bad. You can identify credit cards debt that is really good debt. You can also identify 
mortgages that are really bad. <laughs> it's really about does this put the person in a better financial position when you analyze all factors, not doing it superficially with the emotional response to debt, whether you are a Dave Ramsey fan and think that if you have debt, you're going to go to hell, or you're a Kai Kawasaki fan who thinks that there's never been a loan that he doesn't like. And if you have a house that's worth $100,000, take out a $200 million mortgage on it if they'll let you. Don't worry if you can pay it back. You should just have the debt. Whatever emotional baggage you bring to the table on either side of that equation, you don't want to look at it from that superficial standpoint. It's really what does it do overall financially. It kind of reminds me of the term versus whole life insurance conversation that we had, yeah. where it's the products have been pushed in a way that generally gives them a bad reputation. And I think, you know, credit cards, rightfully so, in similar way to annuities or whole mm -hmm. life insurance. But the thing itself is not inherently bad. It's how it's been pushed or advertised or tried to been put onto people who it's not the right fit for. Yeah. And also how people use it without proper education. And oftentimes people have really negative experiences from that, and then they swing their pendulum to the other side. So do you have some examples or, you know, because the idea of like, yeah, if I could have a goose that laid golden eggs, like, hell yeah, I mean, sign me up for that. What are, like, do you have some, some real examples world? that are, that are not violating the law of physics? Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Can we get maybe something that's rooted in reality here? You just haven't hung out with enough gooses. Apparently, uh, <laughs> geez, I'll make more geese friends. Yeah. So let, let's look at some, one of the most common things. And that is we talked about Dave Ramsey and uh, I talked about Dave Ramsey and, and Guy Kawasaki a, a few seconds ago. So let's kind of take a look at that. You've got on the one hand, Kawasaki, where it's literally just take on as much leverage as you possibly can, right? Leverage up to the hill. And there is really good math behind what he says. The problem is he takes it to the extreme and the math breaks down. He just doesn't bother to actually show the math. He shows the math in this one version and then he goes, okay, now let's take that and extrapolate it to this ridiculous level. And we're just gonna pretend like we don't have to redo the math. On the flip side, You've got Dave Ramsey. And one of the things that I, and I grew up on Dave Ramsey, by the way. So, you know, but one of the things that I always smile about whenever I catch his show every once in a while is he will do these debt free screams. And he'll, or sorry, he will do these real millionaires, the real millionaire segments. And he'll ask people, okay, so you're a millionaire. And he'll say, so tell me about your assets. And they'll say, oh, yeah, well, we've got a house that's worth $800,000. We've got $100,000 in the 401k. We've got $50,000 in savings, right? They'll rattle off all their assets. So, okay, that's $1.2 million. Great job. And how much did debt play a role in you building your million-dollar net worth? And the person says, nothing. And I go, really? You didn't get a mortgage for that house? Because... 30 seconds ago, you said you paid off the mortgage. So literally 70% of your net worth, 70% of your millionaire status is your house, which you got a mortgage for. And yet you're saying that debt played no role in building that wealth. And this is the fundamental thing that you have to understand is that, you know, people look at it and say, well, I had to get rid of the debt to have this million dollar net worth. 
Not really. You could have also invested more in your 401k or a bunch of other things, right? But let's just go with that idea. That doesn't mean that the debt didn't play a role in you acquiring that asset because it absolutely did. They wouldn't have had that asset without that debt. Right. And when we look at going back to Kawasaki with his, the initial math totally makes sense. Just when he extrapolates it, it gets to the crazy town part. The leverage on this is very important because you took out a loan, you bought the house for $400,000, you put in, let's say you have a 20% down payment. So you put in $100,000 of your own money and that house appreciates at 3%, but it appreciates on the entire $400,000, not on the $100,000 that you put in, which is your down payment. And so the fact that that grew to $800,000 over the course of, you know, what, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, 20 years. The fact that it grew over that 20 years to $800,000, it doubled was because you bought it when it was 400. And the only way you were able to do that was by financing the other 80% of the cost. But the inflation that increased the value of the property was on the entire amount, not just on your down payment. Hmm. And that is a very, that, that idea of leverage of being able to buy an asset, it grows, and then, but not having to invest a significant amount of your money uh, is one of the reasons why owning a home is one of the key, highly correlated things with wealth building. And it, it's because of the fact that you're able to put so little of your own money down. You're able to shift your expenses from renting to paying back a mortgage. And then, of course, it grows after that point. Now, let's take another step back, which is this does not mean that you should go out and just invest in the biggest house you can, because the idea of leverage really, the math really only works out extremely well when you are looking at generating an income from the property, which you don't do when you live in it. When you live in it, the math just basically works out where you pretty much break even, but at least you have a house at the end. Yeah. Right. I saw a post on Instagram where it's like, your primary residence is not an investment. And it's, oh, well, God, no. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, that, it, it's very interesting how common that idea of my house is an asset or is an investment is. Yeah. And I think the power of people with loud microphones, I yes. guess. Yeah, houses are absolutely not investments if you live in them because of the fact that you don't have access to the money, period. You just don't. I mean, yes, you can take out a loan. Okay, you're taking out a loan. So we're back to that discussion. You could also sell the house. Very few people sell the house. It is a very uncommon situation unless people are moving when in retirement. Most people stay in their houses because it's one thing to say when you buy the house, oh yeah, I'll sell it and have a bunch of money to do these other things. It's another thing when you are 40 years later looking at that, oh, that's the air, that's the room that my daughter took her first step in. Yeah, let's sell that. It's not realistic. I'll give you some other good examples, right? So with regard to look at refinancing, my we just built a back house on our property. We took a very large amount of money <laughs> in order to do that. And California, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we wanted to replenish some of that liquid cash that we wanted to have. So we literally just refinanced the house. And my 
biggest complaint from refinancing was that I wasn't able to take out as much of a loan as I wanted to. Because mathematically, it is nearly impossible for me to not come out ahead. Mortgage rates were at the time 2.8%. Take in our tax deduction, it's going to drop that down sub 2%. Have a, I can do a FDIC insured account at 2% right now. Yeah, it's at 2% right now. And so with no risk. And on top of all of that, we're not even factoring in inflation over the 30 years. So financially, my incentive to pay down that mortgage is zero. Zero. Yeah. My wife and I both have loans in our cars. Both of our cars have loans on them. Even after building the back house, without taking money out of retirement, we could write a check to get rid of those loans. But financially, it does not make sense to do that because of the fact that the, low, the interest rates are 1.9% on those two loans. And we can much, much more efficiently use that money for other things, not even for return on investment, but for just enjoying life more. <laughs> As I call it, ROH, just like the return on happiness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, now keep in mind, we're also not drowning in debt. We're not struggling to make payments. We're not, none of that stuff is factored in. And so we want to look at it not from the standpoint of, ooh, debt bad. It's what does it do in the short term and the long term to the overall financial plan? And one of the things that I will do very early with clients is try to unbrainwash them about paying down the mortgage if that's something that they have to say, right? If that's something they want. And I'm not against clients paying down the mortgage. I just want them to make an informed decision rather than an emotional decision. And one of the ways that I'll do that is I'll tell them, so I want you to imagine that every single one of your goals is accomplished. Every single one of your dreams is funded, including all of your legacy goals for your children, for your grandchildren, and for your great-grandchildren. Would you care if you died with a $800,000 mortgage or 400 or whatever the number is, right? And if the client goes, well, yeah, because I want to be able to give my kids the house mortgage-free. Okay, so that's one of your goals. Yeah, of course it is. Well, I just said that it's funded, meaning that we're going to accomplish that in some other way. You'll have the mortgage when you die and it'll be gone by the time the house goes to the kids. Oh, I, I guess I wouldn't care. And so it's important that we frame things from that perspective, from the perspective of the plan rather than the perspective of paying off a mortgage is a good thing. There's a reason why the phrase house rich but cash poor exists. 100%. Yeah. In fact, the whole thing in the knowledge center about paying off a mortgage. <laughs> yes, we do. And uh, I know that we, like you said, we touched upon this in the, in the crash course well, videos. Yeah, let's talk about some other good things, yeah. right? Student loans. There, we have this societal emotional baggage related to student loans. And again, we want to look at it from the perspective of the financial plan. If a person gets a, a student loan and that loan is going to cost them, let's say they get a $30,000 student loan. 
that loan is going to cost them a total of $200 a month, right? For the next 25 years. But that allows them to get a job that moves them from a $40,000 a year salary to a $60,000 a year salary. So they're going to earn an extra after taxes, $1,000 a month. Why would you not want to exchange $200 a month for $1,000 a month? Because a bachelor's degree no longer guarantees that that extra job is going to be 60K versus 40K because now I could. Oh, Sorry. so what you're saying is we want to make good decisions about what we spend that $30,000 on. I knew you were going to go there. Yes. It's if we had a crystal ball when we, you know, we're in high school that. So, yes, there are certain degrees that I 100%. They, there's data that says if you go into this degree, there's a much higher correlation with you earning a higher income versus getting this degree, which generally is about, you know, nothing to pay back the student loans with. But again, we want to make sure that we don't saddle the student loan with baggage that it doesn't belong. Because that's not about the student loan. That's about a lack of good major choice planning, a lack of good counseling and guidance from high school guidance counselors, a, a lack of good parental involvement in those choices, a lack of good counselors from the college, right? That, that's all an issue of a poor 18-year-old who's just barely an adult, only in the legal sense, Yeah, right? I was not an adult at 18 yeah. in any other sense besides the legal sense. Is making these massive decisions and we don't have good structures for providing good guidance around it. But that's not a problem of student loans. That's a problem. That's, that's a separate set of problems. Similarly, let's go from $30,000 to a $200,000 loan. If you take out a $200,000 loan and you're going to to get a degree from a very prestigious, one of the Ivy Leagues in the country law firm, and that's going to allow you to get a job at a New York law firm, because that's been your dream, or San Francisco or Los Angeles law firm, where your starting salary is going to be $140,000 a year. It's a little hard to justify why that trade-off doesn't make sense. Now, a lot of people say, yeah, but then you have to work 80 hours a week. Okay, but we've established that that's what your goal is, because you want that life. That's what you want to accomplish. And so, Again, we want to we want to really look at it from the perspective of not, oh, I have to pay this loan back for 25 years. Right. So for the next 25 years, you're going to make $800 a month more than you otherwise would, even after the loan. By all means, pay it back over 25 years and be happy. <laughs> you're such a robot. I mean, I get, I get it, right? Mathematically, I understand it. And this is where I think just coaching is so important for people to be able to hold that to be true while at the same time, all of the like frustrations and emotional baggage that will inevitably come with it from the humans that you're across the table with, but to be able to have that framing and to be able to do that and don't do it with someone who's a philosophy major. It will just make them very sad. Here's how that didn't work. Or here's why that, here's why that music business degree was a whole bunch of crap that you shouldn't have gotten in the first place. You Jack. Uh, Anyway, Not that I'm bitter or anything about it. (laughs) But again, better better systems, both parental, social, educational systems around this is is where we want to point our scorn, right? 
Yes. And you want to also understand that whether it's a mortgage, whether it's student loan debt, whether it's anything else, it's also important that we realize that as coaches, as people who are guiding people through this process, our job is not to agree with our clients. If our clients are in that situation where they've got a, they've ended up with a very good outcome as a result of this student loan debt, and they are emotionally negatively impacted by the student loan debt. We shouldn't be there. You know, you, you called me a robot, but the reality is, yes, we need to guide clients to this decision, but we have to guide them to this decision that this is actually a good thing for them, right? That, that making this student loan payment is actually a positive in their lives because let's look at how the math works out. Because otherwise they are beating themselves up. They're spending emotional energy. They are limiting their ability to advance their careers because of that emotional energy and that emotional and that mental toll that that takes over something that is an unrealistic expectation. And we shouldn't feed into that any more than a psychologist should feed into the depressive thoughts of someone that they're working with who has clinical depression. And so our our role is to somewhat be that robot do it in a way that isn't, doesn't take away their humanity or doesn't diminish the emotional impact that they're feeling, but also doesn't validate that those emotions are absolutely correct, right? We validate the emotions, not the correctness of the emotions. Yes. Touche, my robot friend. You win this one. <laughs> All robots do. That's why we're going to ultimately bow down to our robot AI overlords. Well played. And jokes aside, very, very good point. I think that's a very, very important point to have made. So, any questions or crosses people want to snail to? Well, probably just <laughs> in the comments. <laughs> None that have come up quite yet. Let's see. No. So if anyone does have any questions or comments, you can go ahead and put them in the comments below. If they don't happen while we're live, you know, just make sure to tag Josh and I so that we get the notification. And ask the questions in the comments, and we'll get to them after the live at a future date. Yeah. One last thing is also realize that debt can be used in more complex strategies as well. So there are tax management strategies, there's liability shielding strategies, and a bunch of other things that that debt is oftentimes used for. And so paying down a debt sooner or faster may actually place more assets at risk. Uh, may actually increase the client's taxes such that they're, sure, they save $1,000 a year in interest. Great job. They just paid an extra $1,200 a year in taxes. And I don't mean because of the deduction. These are complex strategies, right? Uh, But they paid an extra $1,200 a year in taxes. And so effectively, it's been, it puts them in in a worse position. But don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying deduction, the deduction for interest is great. And that's the reason to have the debt. No, you get a very small portion of that back. This would be more complex tax strategies that incorporate multiple elements of the tax code, not just a single element. And so it might be beyond what many of us coaches do, but important to understand that kind of going back to the initial point, a dogmatic view, debt is bad or debt is great in all cases is problematic. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Josh, as always. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Join us and we'll see you next week. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. Uh, It also helps iTunes and everything else know that you liked it and suggest it to other people. And if you can think of one person, a financial coach or someone aspiring to be, who would connect with what we talked about today, share it with them as well. If you're ready to take the next step and build your successful financial coaching business, FCN has turnkey resources to help you get clients, work with clients effectively, and run your business efficiently. Head to Financial Coaches Network backslash start here or Financial Coaches Network backslash stall there if you're Sean Connery. Thank you again for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast.